1: Just been to see Her Majesty the Queen, who has invited me to form a government. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land.
0: Iraq collapsing, Syria collapsing, Yemen collapsing, Libya collapsing, and everything else in turmoil. Nothing to do with us. Hey everyone, welcome to Where We Are with Tarrant Siegel. It's a podcast that breaks down what happened in the world in the last seven days and how we got here. On today's episode…
1: Does the U.S. know who may have initiated or bankrolled this operation
0: in Venezuela from over the weekend? As the Secretary of Defense said, and the President too, there was no U.S. government direct involvement in this operation.
1: To ask you why La Guaira, Everyone wonders why. Are you familiar with Alexander the Great? Can you repeat that? He struck deep into the heart of the enemy, and that's how he won.
0: But first, here's what happened in the world this week. (laughs) After three successive elections in one year, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, was officially granted a new term in office on Thursday. Netanyahu will lead a coalition government with his former rival, Benny Gantz. The deal came only a day after Israel's Supreme Court ruled that it would not stop Netanyahu from leading a government if he could somehow form a majority, despite the fact that he's been indicted on corruption charges. With another term secured and the political deadlock in Israel resolved, at least for now, It's expected that Netanyahu is going to be looking to annex the controversial West Bank territory. Despite the global pandemic, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to be flying to Israel this week to discuss Netanyahu's annexation plans, which he hopes to bring to fruition by this summer. If successful, it could be the final death knell for any hope of a two-state solution to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We will look back at this as one of the most extreme economic events that has ever taken place. As the economic pain from the global pandemic intensifies, leaders around the world are finding themselves testily at odds with some of their regional authorities. In Italy, which imposed the longest and strictest lockdown in Europe, the government threatened legal action against a province that was trying to ease restrictions faster than the rest of the country. In the U.S., states are at odds, with Texas allowing hair salons and barbershops to reopen, while California is only letting some retailers resume curbside sales with employees wearing masks. This comes as the unemployment rate in the U.S. spiked to a level not seen since the Great Depression a century before. In South Korea, which was seen as a model for the pandemic response, a new uptick in cases following the easing of their restrictions is a sorry foreshadowing for other countries hoping to reopen their economies. On Friday, hundreds of protesters in Nairobi, Kenya blocked a major highway by burning tires. The demonstration was to protest the government's demolition of over 7,000 homes in one of Nairobi's poor informal settlements. Residents essentially awoke to the sound of bulldozers and were forced to leave their homes. Since the capital has restrictions on movements due to the pandemic, the now homeless residents are having to sleep outside in the rain and cold. A group of non-governmental organizations known as the Housing Alliance sent a letter to Kenya's president demanding that the displaced people be allowed to rebuild their homes but the group says that the government hasn't responded or done anything to help the homeless displaced residents. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German high command and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. And finally, Friday marked the 75th anniversary of VE Day, the victory of the Allied forces over Nazi Germany. Given the state of the world, a lot of celebrations were canceled or scaled back dramatically. In the UK, the government encouraged people to cheer for the Allied forces from their front steps and balconies. In France, President Macron led a muted, somber ceremony at the Arc de Triomphe. In Russia, where Victory Day is the country's most important secular holiday, an ambitious plan for the 75th anniversary was scrapped, and instead President Putin laid flowers at the tomb of an unknown fallen soldier and gave a quiet address. The only nation that seemed to ignore the coronavirus state of things was neighboring Belarus, which inexplicably went ahead with all of its planned festivities, including a full military parade of 3,000 soldiers cheered on by a crowd of thousands of spectators, few of whom could be seen wearing masks. And with that, it's time for this week's deep dive.
1: At 1,700 hours, a daring amphibious raid was launched from the border of Colombia, deep into the heart of Caracas. Our men are continuing to fight right now. Our units have been activated in the south, west, and east of Venezuela. Commander Nieto is with me, is co-located, and Commander Saquea is on the ground now fighting.
0: For those of you preoccupied with other things during this global pandemic, you may have missed that Venezuela was invaded last weekend. This was a crazy story. It's been described as something out of Hollywood. At sundown on Friday, 60 men left the shores of Colombia in two speedboats heading for La Guaira, Venezuela, a city about 20 miles from the capital of Caracas, along the country's most heavily fortified coast. By Sunday morning, the boats were in sight of the Venezuela coastline, but one of the boats was running dangerously low on fuel and was forced to try and make an emergency stop. Before they could even get ashore, the Venezuelan Navy swarmed them. Hundreds of miles away, in Miami, their mission leader in an ex-Green Beret cheered them on. Like I said, this is a crazy story with a lot of twists and turns, but understand how we got here. To understand the central characters involved, we need to go back quickly to January 23rd,
1: 2019. Juro! Asumir formalmente las competencias
0: del Ejecutivo Nacional
1: como el presidente encargado de Venezuela.
0: This is the sound of Juan Guaido, opposition leader and speaker of Venezuela's National Assembly, swearing himself into office. A year and a half later, it's hard to imagine that at the time, Guaido was a little known lawmaker. Today, he's a central pillar in Venezuela's endless political crisis, which has only plunged the country deeper and deeper into social and economic turmoil. The chaos is so severe that nearly five million people have been forced to flee Venezuela or face ruin and starvation. Many parents have even fled and left their kids behind. When Guaido proclaimed himself Venezuela's true president, it was partly in reaction to this, to the suffering and starvation of the Venezuelan people. Despite being an oil-rich country, government mismanagement and corruption, coupled with a declining demand for fossil fuel over the last few decades, has left the economy absolutely shattered. And while the people of Venezuela were starving, the government, led by President Nicolas Maduro, was profiting. An investigation by the National Assembly, Venezuela's Congress or Parliament, in 2017 found that the government was inflating the prices of boxes of food and pocketing the difference, totaling over 200 million US dollars. The regime also bribed voters by offering desperately needed food in exchange for votes. I could go on like this for a while, but needless to say, the Maduro government ranks as one of the most corrupt in the world, according to Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index. And so, with good cause considering the bribery and suppression and bleeding corruption, Guaidó proclaimed the 2019 election illegitimate, which made him the interim president according to Venezuela's constitution. This declaration might not have gone very far, except that countries around the world stepped forward to back Guaido, recognizing him as Venezuela's true president. We are supporting the hopes
1: of Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to restore democracy. The United
0: States is leading a 59-nation diplomatic coalition against the socialist dictator of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro. The problem was that Maduro refused to step down. Hoy estuvo Donald Trump en Miami, con una retórica cansada, cuestionando el derecho de nuestro país libre de adoptar las ideas del socialismo humano, cristiano, de nuestro socialismo. Casi con un discurso al estilo nazi, para prohibir las ideologías. Donald Trump quiere prohibir las ideologías, la diversidad política, y quiere imponer el pensamiento único de los supremacistas Blancos de la Casa Blanca. And even more important than the backing of the international community, Maduro had the backing of the Venezuelan army. And so months passed with no resolution, no progress, only a worsening of the conflict and suffering. And that's when an American and a decorated ex-soldier decided to take things into his own hands. Jordan Goudreau, the mastermind of this ridiculous mission, fought in Iraq and Afghanistan as a Green Beret, which means a special operations force in the US Army. When he left the military, he set up a security company called Silver Corp USA, based in Miami. The promotional video on their website is all shots of Goudreau, mostly in military fatigues, in some cases jumping out of planes.
1: The world is dangerous. Some problems can't be solved with conversation.
0: Plus a few inexplicable shots of him standing on a small deck next to a tropical beach with a woman in a long dress beside him, as he gestures out to the sea.
1: We manage risk, anywhere, anytime, any situation, Silvercore USA.
0: The company is legit and pretty high profile despite the fact that much of the text on its website is lifted directly from other security company websites and masterclass courses, with the word Silver Corp. subbed in. But they've done security at Trump rallies, as Goudreau proudly proclaims these days in the aftermath of the failed invasion. Goudreau first got interested in Venezuela in February, 2019, when his company ran security for a pro Guaido concert on the border between Venezuela and Colombia. Now, Goudreau will say that he was moved by the plight of Venezuelans and wanted to help them take back their government. This is him talking to YouTube channel Factores de Poder about his plan.
1: The bottom line is, a lot of us came together to do this. I mean, I've been a freedom fighter my whole life. This is all I know. And when I see people who want to fight for the country...
0: Un montón de nosotros nos
1: juntamos para hacer esto y es todo lo que sé, hecho esto toda mi vida. It's, it's, I mean, these guys have a right to fight for their country. El de por su país.
0: But an ex-business partner of his at Silvercorp, Drew White, says that Goudreau just wanted to capitalize on the Trump administration's anxious desire to get Maduro removed from power. In any case, it was at this concert that Goudreau had his fateful meeting with Cliver Acala, a former general in the Venezuelan army who defected to Guaido's opposition forces. In September, Alcala arranged a meeting in Miami between Goudreau himself and Juan José Redon, or J.J. Rendon, a Venezuelan exile who was appointed by Juan Guaidó to strategize ways of toppling Maduro and seizing power. Despite his connections, Alcala was a strange choice for restoring peace and toppling corruption in his homeland. In 2011, the U.S. sanctioned him for allegedly supplying fighters in Colombia with weapons in exchange for war cocaine. And several months after this fateful Miami meeting, Alcala would have to leave the operation because he was indicted by the U.S. on narco-terrorist charges. But anyway, back to September, Rendon and his team had been experimenting with all sorts of different plans for overthrowing Maduro, and over time were becoming increasingly desperate. And it's maybe that that can best explain what happened next. Rendon's team had interviewed other security companies about possible operations, but they were all asking astronomical fees, upwards of billions of US dollars. So when Goudreau offered his enthusiastic services for the measly retainer of $1.5 million, they must have looked like a good deal. In any case, an eight-page contract was drawn up between Goudreau's company with stated aim of building an operation to capture, detain, remove Nicolas Maduro, remove the current regime, and install the recognized Venezuelan president, Juan Guaido. Goudreau even named the scheme, Operation Gideon. Goudreau published pages of this contract online last week, and the most shocking and damning signatory is Juan Guaido himself. Although Guaido keeps insisting that this isn't his signature, and he had no involvement in the scheme.
1: So once the contract was signed, I think they had five days to pay out a retainer, which they never paid. Y nunca lo they never paid that, that retainer. Never paid that. That was for 1.5 million. And that probably would have been enough to do the whole thing. So the, the bottom line is this too. So as it went on, uh, they, they kept promising to pay week after week, promising, oh, we're gonna... Never- la- oh, who were making these promises that they were going to pay next week? They were making the promises through their, their guy, their guy who communicated with me, basically. Okay. Uh, Rodney, what's his name? El Nombre, do you remember his name? Oh, J.J. It was J.J.
0: What's clear, though, is that J.J. Rendon took the contract seriously enough to forward Goudreau $50,000 out of his own pocket to cover initial expenses, and Rendon has confirmed that they did have an agreement drawn up last fall. The agreement said that Silver Corp. had 45 days to train and equip the invasion force, after which point they would invade Venezuela, seize key areas and buildings, and try to encourage a revolution. But Rendon said the relationship quickly soured, and he started to doubt whether Goudreau actually had the resources and competency to carry out the operation. He also became increasingly annoyed and worried by Goudreau's demands for money. Rendon showed The Guardian text messages he said were from Goudreau. One reads, I will get the 1.5 the legal way. What a shame. We gave this to you on a silver platter, and you fucked the whole thing up. And another threatened, your credibility in D.C. because of this is gone. You are a multi-millionaire. Shame on you for not fixing your country. You don't deserve to live in the USA. The partnership came to a fiery head when Goudreau, along with some of his combatants, confronted Rondon in his apartment, demanding the $1.5 million retainer. In the end, Goudreau left without the money and the two didn't speak again. Despite pretty much losing his financial backer, Goudreau inexplicably decided to push forward with the plot. Goudreau and Ocala headed off to Colombia, where they set up training camps for the invading force that seemed to comprise only a few hundred men in its height. A former Navy SEAL flew down to train the fighters in basic first aid and was alarmed to see that they were being underfed and training with sawed-off broomsticks. And things only went downhill from there. The Colombian police got wind of the operation Safe House, some 55 miles from the Venezuelan border, because the landlord complained that the plotters were behind on their rent payments. That led to the capture of one of the operation's Reno dusters that was stuffed with ammunition. And then to Capitol, it Goudreau's partner Alcala was indicted by the US in March, as I said before, on drug trafficking and narco-terrorist charges. That probably should have been the final straw for the botched operation. But ironically, it was probably that indictment that kicked it into action. At the same time that Alcala was indicted, Nicolas Maduro himself was indicted on those same charges. Remember that Alcala was a general in the Venezuelan army and part of Maduro's inner circle before he defected. The indictment of Maduro, incidentally, ended diplomatic relations between the US and Venezuela, which is going to cause further problems after the invasion fails. But importantly, when the US unveiled these indictments, they put a bounty on Maduro's head.
1: This is Maduro the leader of the Cartel of the Sons. He is charged, along with his co-defendants, with conspiracy to commit narco-terrorism, conspiracy to import hundreds of tons of cocaine into the United States, and related weapons offenses. The State Department has offered a reward of $15 million for the capture, for the uh, conviction of Maduro.
0: So now there was a reward up for grabs that was 10 times larger than the retainer Goudreau had lost. And so the hungry and undertrained ragtag group of plotters boarded their invasion boats one Friday evening. But in fact, there's actually another twist here, because as the invaders were manning their speedboats, the Associated Press published a long, in-depth article fully exposing the entire invasion plot. But even with their secret operation no longer a secret by any means, the group pushed ahead, reaching Venezuela's coast dangerously low on fuel and coming ashore in the custody of Maduro's army. Maduro's regime claims that eight men were killed in the attack. Among the survivors arrested are two Americans, Luke Denman and Aaron Barry, both former U.S. Special Forces soldiers like Goudreau. Since the U.S. and Venezuela have ended diplomatic relations, there is no U.S. embassy in Caracas to try and intervene on the men's behalf. And you also have to think that if a couple of speedboats came ashore in Miami trying to invade the U.S., the invaders would be locked up for life without a second thought. So the future of these men is really unclear. During their detainment, they revealed everything they could about the plot.
1: My responsibilities to Silvercore are written in a contract, or described in a contract, signed by Jordan Goudreau, Juan Rendon, and Juan Guaido. In In total, it was... 50 to 60, so around 20 people per group. To meet Venezuelans in Colombia, train them, and come with them to Venezuela to secure Caracas and uh, secure an airport here for follow on. He was staying in Rio Grande. Uh There was one that had a.
0: At one point, one of them even suggests that President Trump had authorized it. But Trump categorically denies this, and it does seem from his odd facial movements that he might be trying to signal that he's claiming this under duress. In the meantime, Goudreau has triumphantly taken responsibility for the failed coup that one commentator said makes the Bay of Pigs look like D-Day. The 2020 coup attempt already has its own 58-citation Wikipedia page, with the title currently under debate. And so it looks like Operation Gideon will live on as a baffling footnote in history. All right, and that's our show. Tune in next week for another episode of Where We Are with Terrence Siegel. Stay safe guys.